some people say it's difficult. I, I don't think it is, right? I think the key is listening to people and asking the right questions. You can't always quantify, you can't quantify people, right? To really help them when it comes to DEI. Um, we're, we're people, we're humans, right? So we have emotions, we have feelings that we can't necessarily assign a number to. So what I find to be more effective is actually creating focus groups that are safe spaces for people to express how they're feeling about DEI. Um, in some instances, especially if it's a smaller organization, offering one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and that's where it's helpful to have someone like me coming in because you have this sort of neutral third party who can gather this qualitative information and feed it back to leaders and others within the organization in an anonymized way that protects those people, right? But gives them, gives the company an understanding of what's going on. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io. The link to connect with us is also in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right, Adriel Parker, you know, I know you as an incredible DEI professional um, and someone who creates incredibly engaging content, but I know you do a lot more than that. Um, so for the people that don't know you yet, could you let us know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. So I'm Adriel, pronoun she, her, um, and you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think first and foremost, I'm an entrepreneur, but the bulk of my work falls into diversity, equity, inclusion consulting or thought partnership as I like to think of it. Um, I of course do um, a lot of content as you came across. Um, I also am into design work. So I do graphic design work. I do web design, I built my own website. Um, I also love upcycling. So I'm into sewing, <laughs> so all sorts of things, but the thing that I am probably most passionate about is my DEI work. So do you consider yourself a multi-potentialite? Ooh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never been referred to of that, but just based on what I think you're you're saying, uh, probably, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like last year, I, I had this whole sort of, I, almost, I pretty much had a meltdown. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I felt, I, I describe it as, you know, the inflatable in front of the car dealerships <laughs> that are just like flailing about this. That's how I felt towards the end of last year. And I think a huge part of that is because I was trying to box myself into just doing DEI work and not allowing myself to tap into and enjoy the other, you know, skills and talents that I, I possessed. And so this year I'm really all about finding ways to find synergy and harmony with all of those things. and. Um, I don't know, this year has kicked off really well for me and I'm loving just embracing all the things that I, I'm passionate about and that I enjoy. So yes, that was a long way to answer to you, yes. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Like, I was gonna ask you about the inner peace that comes with uh, that self-exploration process. Yeah. Um, yeah, how, how do you feel about it in general? Um, it feels good. It feels, it's almost like a weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. It's nice that I'm not just, you know, heads down, focused in on DEI, which can be quite emotionally taxing and draining work in itself. And so to find a better balance has been really nice. Um, and it's been, 
not that I'm looking for validation, but it's been nice to have people come to me and be like, oh my goodness, like I feel very similarly where, you know, I don't want to box myself in or feel that I have to do that. And it's nice to see you taking on this approach. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like people don't think I'm like losing it over here just yet trying to do all these things. But um, I've always been into a lot of different things. And I think that's one of the things that has led me to DEI work and, and, you know, quite frankly, has made me pretty, pretty good at what I do, so. That's awesome. All right, so you told us that DEI professionals need to tighten up in 2023. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I knew that was coming. Um, well, first and foremost, I'll shout out um, Dr. Sam Ray, who wrote a LinkedIn post specifically about this after witnessing a DEI person um, yeah, <laughs> needing to tighten up for lack of better words. Um, and Dr. Sam Ray, if you don't follow her, is an amazing DEI practitioner to follow. She also created what's called the DEI Offload, which is a community of DEI practitioners. Um, but when we're talking about tightening up, it's really that, you know, the DEI space has really exploded over the past several years, um, really the past two to three years. And there's been an influx of practitioners coming into the space many of whom don't necessarily have the experience um, or um, the knowledge necessary. But one of the really key things is that there are a lot of people coming in who are not doing the work on themselves before trying to come in and help others do this work. And um, that really requires us to reflect on our power and privilege. And when I say privilege, I'm talking about as it relates to sort of our social identities, right? And the, the identities that we carry and how they influence your level of power within our world, within our society. Um, and this applies to all of us, right? A lot of people come into the DEI space and they're like, well, I belong to, you know, historically systemically marginalized groups. So I've done the work and that's not the case. I mean, I'm, I myself am still constantly checking myself, checking my biases, um, making sure that I'm exposing myself to different types of people, different ways of thinking. And that is a, a journey. Um, it does not end. And so I think a lot of DEI practitioners need to really lean into doing that work on a continuous basis for themselves. Um, and then the second point obviously is experience, right? Theory is not enough. I, I say it over and over again, it is a hill I'm willing to die on that you cannot just go get a DEI certification or take a course um, and expect to be a DEI subject matter expert, right? It, it really takes, you know, yes, you do need that that practical theory and understanding of the frameworks and all that stuff, which a certificate or a program can help with that. However, you need to then put it into practice, much like everything else, any other industry. Um, and so surrounding yourselves around someone or multiple DEI practitioners that have experience is really, really, really important. That's awesome. Um, and I know that you have a really cool approach to really inf infusing DEI into the everyday uh, workflow. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and how uh, you help companies execute upon that vision? Yeah, so one of the things is that, you know, I think for a long time we've seen people gravitate towards sort of the low hanging fruit or the quick wins within DEI. Typically, you know, folks focus on check the box trainings, workshops, I always joke around and I'm like, these trainings that were designed in 1985 and MS-DOS are no longer helping, right? So um, people tend to focus on, let's just go do a training or 
Um, they'll focus on, you know, cultural events and heritage month celebrations. Not to say that you don't need workshops um, and educational pieces or celebrations and acknowledgements. We absolutely need those things, but we need the short-term approaches as well as the long-term approaches. Um, and so just being mindful of that is, is very fundamental in my approach to the DEI work that I do. And it's very much rooted in this idea of, of really creating and fostering an inclusive workplace which is rooted in psychological safety, right? This idea that I can take interpersonal risks without feeling like I'm gonna be humiliated or, or embarrassed or retaliated against or whatever else. Um, and so I, get, I try to get people to focus in on that piece and think more so about, okay, here's my role. Let's say I'm a salesperson, right? What can I do in my day-to-day -day that is going to foster diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So it's not just this one-off thing that I sign up for to do this workshop or celebrate whatever month is coming up, but I'm actively thinking about this every day. If I'm a people manager, for example, and I've noticed that, you know, within my team, it's always the loudest voices in the room that are dominating the conversation. There are steps that I can take to make sure that more introverted people are being heard and that their ideas are considered just as much, right? So those are just a couple examples, but the point is that everyone has a, a, a role when it comes to DEI, whether or not you necessarily label it as DEI um, is a different story, but there are so many things that we can all be doing to just foster it on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that's what I try to really drive home for people. And I know you, um, I know you uh, work with a lot of leaders one-on-one -on -one and people kind of need that, that, like that support. Um, what are some typical problems that, that you pr try to help them solve uh, off the mm -hmm. bat when you start working with them? Um, so it really varies and that's probably going to be my answer for a lot of things, right? Is that, um, there's no one size fits all approach. I will say that typically when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with leaders, what they need most is someone to just be real with them, um, and pretty much call them out on actions or behaviors that perhaps they need to learn or unlearn. Um, that are necessary to foster a diverse, equitable, and inclusive, inclusive workplace. Um, you know, a lot of times I talk to leaders and it's like they want me to wave a magic wand and, you know, quickly transform their organization into this inclusive, equitable, diverse place. Um, and they just want to sign off on initiatives and, of course, sign a check without having to really do any work. And so um, I really try to get leaders to understand that we're trying to move from this idea of buy-in to leadership engagement. So what are you actively doing to learn more about what it takes to foster DEI? And then not only what are you doing, what are you learning, but what are you doing about it, right? What actions are you taking to really examine your own behaviors as well as looking at the structures, the systems, the processes that are in place within your organization. So it's there's two levels. There's the people side of it, and then there's also the systemic side, which is really just a, how, what a group of people have decided is going to be the process for things. Right. Um, and you know, when we talk about doing the work, um, I think some people are like, okay, what does that mean? Uh, but yeah. then the next part of that is like, how do we know if we're doing enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no set, again, the, the DEI space is, is very open, right? It's not like yeah. a lot of other industries where it's like very calculated and you do this, 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 and this is perfect, right? Um, and so again, each organization is going to be different. 
But when we're thinking about, you know, doing the work, what is really important is that we're actually doing an assessment of the organization to start and really understanding what are some of the critical issues and problems. Because a lot of times people just throw a solution at it, right? Like, oh, there have been a lot of microaggressions in the workplace, so let's have everybody go through this training. When in fact, if you looked at some of the, the data or actually asked people around the organization, you may have found that it's actually a specific uh, team that is dealing with microaggressions or it's your middle managers who are not leading inclusively in order to triage these issues, right? And so it would be more effective for us to send those middle managers through an inclusive leadership workshop series or a series of, you know, learnings than it is to just throw everyone at this, you know, um, catch-all sort of workshop. So it's really about understanding what the issues are, prioritizing them, and then thinking through possible solutions with the expectation in mind that the first, second, or third thing that you do may not work. That's just the reality of it. So it's all about just being willing to iterate and uh, explore different approaches to solving these issues. That's great. And I know you have a lot of insight in terms of um, having a data-driven approach to DEI. Um, what are some key metrics that people should be taking note of? Um, and I know, I know uh, engagement is important, but it's hard to um, I think it's hard to track that too, but yeah, what are some key KPIs? Yeah, I mean, again, it's going to vary on the organization. I mean, I think people often default to wanting to know the demographics within an organization, um, which is more the quantitative side of things. But you really do want to also look at the quali qualitative side of things, which is the engagement, uh, which some people say it's difficult. I, I don't think it is, right? I think the key is listening to people and asking the right questions. You can't always quantify, you can't quantify people, right, to really help them when it comes to DEI. Um, we're, we're people, we're humans, right? So we have emotions, we have feelings that we can't necessarily assign a number to. So, um, you know, things that I like to do, um, I know a lot of folks default to surveys. I personally cannot stand surveys because um, a lot of times people don't respond to them. A lot of times they capture how the majority is feeling and the, the, the minorities within that group uh, are not, you don't fully understand what's going on with them. So what I find to be more effective is actually creating focus groups that are safe spaces for people to express how they're feeling about DEI. Um, in some instances, especially if it's a smaller organization, offering one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and that's where it's helpful to have someone like me coming in because you have this sort of neutral third party who can gather this qualitative information and feed it back to leaders and others within the organization in an anonymized way that protects those people, right? But gives them, gives the company an understanding of what's going on. So when you have that data, that qualitative side of things, you can start to cross-reference things. Let's say, for example, um, Let's say we go into an organization, right? And they've noticed there's a trend with, I don't know, Latina leaders. And every year there's turnover with all of their um, women who identify as Latina um, who just leave, right? And we are not quite sure why. So at that point, it's like, all right, well, let's figure out what's going on here. And that's where you take a data-driven approach, right? We look at some of the demographic information. We may cross-reference um, people that identify as Latina against people with other identities who are in the same role, who have had the same career tra trajectory, who get a sense of um, 
to get a sense of more of the qualitative side that I mentioned earlier, right? So, and apologies, I think my internet is randomly unstable. <laughs> oh, God, I thought that was me. That's all good. <laughs> no, I just got to pop up like your internet is unstable. I'm like, um, Verizon file, it costs enough. We need y'all to work that out. <laughs> Come on now. Okay. <laughs> I hear oh, you. Um, and I know you've had an incredible um, professional journey overall before you started your entrepreneur, uh, yeah. entrepreneurial uh venture but yeah could you talk a little bit about how you manifested the the adriel that we see today person that's yeah just oh my goodness right <laughs> um i mean if we're if we want the full story we'll probably need more time but um <laughs> you know in short growing up i had a really interesting childhood i um, grew up in a neighborhood where everybody looked like me most people were blue collar workers and i went to um, a school where i was pretty much one of few um, I felt like a raisin in a bowl of rice pudding, as one of my fellow DEI practitioners, Karen Young, likes to say. Um, and so it was an interesting juxtaposition between those two environments. And I was kind of left to sort of fend for myself and, you know, navigate both and, and find space for myself. And um, eventually that led to me wanting to create spaces for other people as well um that had similar experiences and that kind of continued throughout you know like my educational journey throughout um you know college and and um i but i never was thinking about dei as a profession i didn't even know that was a possible career choice that i could have um but it just kind of naturally happened over time and i think you know when i really made the transition into dei full time i was at a point where I was like, okay, I'm one of few working. I was working in the tech space. I'm like, I'm one of few working in this tech space. Um, I learned very quickly what some of the approaches to DEI were, um, but I just kept hitting these roadblocks that I found very frustrating for myself. And I was like, I wonder what this would look like if I took a different approach to work. Um, and one of the companies I worked at was a consulting group. Um, and they basically, I like to think of them as sort of like the real life LinkedIn where they have all of these connections um, and then they partner those consultants with people that need them, um, which is a very common practice, right? But what I saw were a ton of DEI consultants and I was like, I can consult in the DEI space like by myself and I was like, okay. So I started networking just with a ton of people, um, both DEI consultants, but also just general consultants to just get an understanding of what that space looked like. And I just, I was like, I could see myself doing this. Like I, I like the independence. Um, I'd already pretty much been working autonomously because I was working on a distributed team where I was the only one sitting in New York in a lot of instances. So I knew I had the, you know, the discipline to keep myself structured. And so I just ended up going for it. I initially said, you know, I want to take three months to try to do this thing. And if it fails, then I'll go back and explore, you know, full-time opportunities. But my saving grace was the network. And, um, you know, as I built my network, I, I made sure that I had both mentors and sponsors. Um, people often conflate the two. And when I think about mentors, I think of people who are coaching and teaching you things, teaching you skills. And when I think of sponsors, I think of people who are plugging your name when you're not in the room, right? And saying, hey, I think you should bring on Adriel to do X, Y, Z. They can be one and the same, right? A mentor can be a sponsor and yeah, but to me, they're two different things. So having those people has been so foundational in me being able to you know, launch as an entrepreneur and sustain myself. It's been almost three years now. Um, and so that right there, I always tell people, people are like, how did you do? How did you? I'm like the networking, I tell you. And 
I know networking is difficult, um, especially for black women, you know, historically we've had a hard time just breaking through that mold of like, you know, past what we've been told to be strong, do it on your own, don't ask for too much help. No, ask for help. People are willing to help you, right? And the more you network, I believe, I think someone always says your your network is your net worth. So I'm a firm believer in that. And that has really been transformational for me. Yeah, I think one of the common phrases, I mean, I'm from Atlanta. Uh, one of the common mm -hmm. phrases in the South was like, stay out of the way, stay out of the way. <laughs> exactly. Know? And I think exactly. um, that can be a deterrent. Um, yep. But you know, let's talk a little bit about slowing down to speed up. I know you've mentioned this okay. before, but yeah. why is it such a tough dynamic to navigate for companies? Um, and how can we, how should we be navigating that? Yeah, I mean, people love instant gratification as we know, right? And so the DEI space is no different. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, people expect me to come in and like wave my magic wand and work a miracle. And I'm like, that's not how this works, right? Um, we didn't just get here, you know, if we're talking about the U.S. in particular, our society was founded on racial inequity, right, as well as gender inequity. And so DEI is really an extension of efforts that were made during the civil rights era and affirmative action. Those are facts, right? Um, outside of the U.S., people think this is a U.S.-specific issue, but there are tons of issues around racial hierarchy, right? We've seen racism in South Africa with apartheid. We've seen parts of Asia dealing with the caste system, right? We even see it today in, in Asia with the beauty system where there's this constant theme of anti-Blackness. Um, Australia, which people think is like this nice, cheery, kind place, um, they had a set of policies called the um, Australia uh, White Policies that were just dismantled in the 1970s, which is not that long ago, you know, it sounds like it, but um, the idea was that they had these set of policies designed to keep non-European people out of the country, in particular Asian people and um, uh, Pacific Islanders. So we're talking about years and years of unlearning beliefs and behaviors and trying to adjust systems. And so it is just not possible for anyone to come in and just do it overnight. Um, like I said, you know, of course, I think it's good to have some of those quick wins in place, but it's nice to have a balance and it's good for people to come to this realization that it's going to take a long time to get there. Um, I think one of the things that makes it particularly tough though, is that people refuse to believe that this history exists and they refuse to believe how we got here. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had to address the whole concept of, oh, I don't see color or all people are, are equal to me. And I'm like, that's great on an individual level. I would love to be there with you, right? But the reality is our society does, in fact, apply hierarchy when it comes to race and ethnicity. It's not just a visual seeing of color, right? Um, or acceptance of color. It is so much deeper than that, right? We attach social identities and hierarchies to our various identities. And it's not just as it applies to race and ethnicity. We can think about hierarchy as it applies to your gender, your sexuality, um, ableism or being disabled, neurodiversity, um, your educational level. If you go into a job, you know, interview the person with the master's or doctoral degree is going to probably trump the person with a high school diploma who may have 20 years of experience, right? And so there is hierarchy to everything and to not acknowledge it is just to kind of shrug it off and just be like, oh, well, well, I guess it'll fix itself. And it's not. So it's like, we have to 
first accept that this is what it is and then decide to take action from there. So when you have workshops with your companies, um, yeah. how do those facilitations work for, for companies and how do people typically feel after, after those things? Um, <laughs> well, I hope they feel pretty good, but um, <laughs> I, I generally try to gather feedback. Um, so my approach is much like how we're having this conversation now. Um, I let people know that, you know, even if you think you're an expert on whatever topic we're talking about, I hope that you take at least one new piece of information away from the discussion um, that you either leverage or share with someone else. Um, I'm a firm believer that the person next to you is always smarter at something than you are. No matter what it is, you can sit down with literally any person and learn something from them, right? Um, and so that's the first thing. I'm like, look for something you could take away. Um, ideally, I want people to be informed within a workshop, but I want them to walk away with tools that are going to either change their behavior or their actions um, to, to really influence them. And whether we're talking about their workplace or their daily lives, they're going to start to implement something, going back to my theme of day to day, to change things, right? It's not, again, I just show up to this workshop and I did it. And then I forget, you know, a week later, my hope is that people come to my workshops and months later, years from now, they're like, there was this one thing I learned and, you know, here it is. Like, uh, for example, I have an allyship training where I talk about this idea of being a bystander versus being an upstander. When we're bystanders, we kind of just stand there and kind of observe. And it's a human thing that happens. We don't really take action. We might just watch, we might record on our phones. Um, but when we're talking about being an upstander, you know, it's someone who's not only seeing what's happening, but trying to do something about it. And so I had someone come to me that took a workshop with me like three years ago. They sent me an email and they were like, oh, I just wanted to let you know, like this concept of being upstairs stuck with me. And I'm like, yes, did my job, right? Um, and so it's just those small things that you want to embed in people to get them to, to change how they're, they're moving through the world. I know we have one more minute, but um, <laughs> uh, Adriel, how should people get in touch with you? Um, they can reach me on my website. It's just adrielparker.com. If you want to skip the fluff, it's adriel.parker or adrielparker.com slash contact. So it'll take you right to my, my contact page and you can send me a message. If there was one yes. action, um, you would urge our DEI leaders or even hiring managers to take after this. Um, what would that action be? Don't just commit to buy-in, take action. Be engaged, be involved with the process, commit to learning, unlearning behaviors, actions, um, and listen to and talk to the people within your organization so that you can learn. So everything rolls up to action, right? It's, it's not, we're, we gotta get past this like, yeah, okay, cool, that sounds good. No, what are you doing as a leader? What are your actions? What are people seeing you do and behave? And how are you behaving? That's my one piece of advice. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Adriel Parker, thank you so much for joining us for the Voices of Inclusion podcast. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.